Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host today, Margaret Kiljoy. And today I am really excited about this episode. I think you all get a lot out of it. I guess I say that every time, but I wouldn't record these episodes if I didn't think you all would get a lot out of them. Today we are talking about harm reduction and we're talking about preparedness that includes drug users. Because if you think you don't know any drug users, you just don't know anyone who is willing to tell you that they're a drug user. And we will talk about that and a lot more. But first, this podcast is a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts. And here's a jingle from another show on the network. The Final Straw is a weekly anarchist radio show. It's fucking awesome, and you're never going to hear me say fucking awesome on our show because we're FCC regulated. There's a, a black part of my heart that that just flutters when you when you talk like that. I... I... <laughs> talk, then more yelling. It's a weird sort of like nice in a way, but also can get kind of crushing at times. org. Okay, we're back. And um, if you could introduce yourself with your name, your pronouns, and then kind of, I guess, a little bit about your background, about the kind of stuff that we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, sure. Hey, Margaret. Uh, my name is Nadia. I use they or she pronouns. And I am a harm reductionist, a drug user. And I have both worked at in-person syringe service programs and currently work for an online mail-based program where we ship safer drug use supplies to folks um, all over the country. That's cool. So we talked about having you on because we wanted to talk about preparedness that includes the drug users in your community, whether the person listening to this is a drug user or whether they care about drug users in their community. And I know it's a big open question, but I kind of wanted to ask you that. How prepare that? <laughs> well, you know, I think that when we talk about prepping, disaster prepping and harm reduction, they're really similar because it's really boils down to risk assessment and thinking critically, right? Mm -hmm. The world isn't black and white. It's not really an easy question to answer. For example, should I evacuate or not in a disaster? Um, similarly, how do I protect myself as a drug user in a world that isn't concerned about my health or safety? And, you know, for people who historically lack access to resources and healthcare, I think talking about how to prepare or what readiness looks like is especially important. Mm -hmm. So I guess I kind of want to start with some of the practical questions. It's like, what are the things that one should do that are different from what one would otherwise do? Like, I'm like thinking about like, even for my own sake, right? Like I'm like, uh, like people say like carry Narcan, for example, like, how does one access that? What is the shelf life on that? Is that a thing that if community like mutual aid groups or, or individuals who have like large stashes of things or whatever, is it like worth having a bunch of, is it depend on community access? Is it better to just like specifically coordinate with existing harm reduction and like needle exchange groups in your area? Like 
it seems to me that like like one of the prepper mindset things is like, oh, there's a thing I need. I should go out and get a bunch of it, right? And and my instinct here is that maybe that rather than run out and get a bunch of, say, Narcan, it would be more about like be aware of how people can access that and which groups do distribute that and then maybe have like enough for me to carry around. I don't know. Yeah, like I, I guess let's start with Narcan. What's What's Narcan? Sure. Um, so for folks that are listening that don't know, Narcan or naloxone uh, is a medication that will reverse an opioid overdose. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it it should be kept in a relatively temperature stable area. But there's there's been a lot of studies on it. Um, and they have shown that it maintains its efficacy much past expiration dates and the kind of temperature parameters so you don't oh, want to keep it somewhere freezing or super hot, but mm-hmm. it is more resilient than you think. And having some naloxone is better than having none. And you mentioned, you know, going out and sort of stocking up. And I think that this is a, a broader conversation about prepping too. the the difference between being ready and hoarding. Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes that line definitely gets blurry. <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> do you do you really need a hundred pounds of rice? Are you going to go through it before it gets bad? Do you have a proper place to store it? I mean, mm. you can talk about naloxone in the same way. Uh, and, you know, just like you can keep Narcan in your bag, if you're going to a show, going to a bar, you can also keep some in your go bag um, if you mm. have one to evacuate, for example. What's the... I, you know, I usually present myself as sort of the, the person who pretends like she doesn't know what she's asking in this episode, in these episodes, but I actually don't know as much about this as I would like. A lot of my friends are way more knowledgeable about this stuff. Um, like what is the difference between Narcan and and Naloxone and, um, how would I, how would I go about getting some to, to carry around with me? Sure. Um, so Narcan is really just a brand name. That's the the nasal spray. Mm-hmm. Um, naloxone is is the actual medication. You can pick it up from syringe service programs in your area. If you don't have a needle exchange in your area, you can go uh, just Google Next Distro. We um, mail naloxone to folks. So just check the website, see if you live in a state or an area where we do that. But we do try to encourage people to sort of seek out resources where they live. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's there's a lot of different organizations, everything from sort of anarchist collectives running needle exchanges to health departments that are, you know, offering trainings and providing Narcan. Mm -hmm. What's the legality of it? So as far as, you know, carrying it with you, there is what is called a standing order. It's basically a sort of blanket prescription. Uh, You can go to the pharmacy, purchase naloxone. Um, It can be prohibitively expensive, uh, especially Mm -hmm. if you don't have insurance, which is why I kind of mentioned, you know, needle exchanges and health departments first. But I think, you know, as far as having it on your person, it's not going to be a situation where it's illegal. However, we know that cops like to fuck with people. 
So if you do happen to have naloxone and you have syringes on you, I'm not going to say you'll be fine. However, the law is on your side in that regard. And another piece of that too is uh, different states have different Good Samaritan laws. So if you are with someone that is experiencing an overdose, in many states, not all, uh, you can call 911 without the uh, fear or threat of potentially being arrested for small possession uh, or things like that. They they are very narrow um, in Mm -hmm. a lot of places, but that's something that you're going to want to look into for your state. So it's like, this makes sense. Like, so probably if, if, I have some drugs on me and my friend has some drugs on me and my friend overdoses. There's a fear of involving the medical establishment because there's a fear of me or the person who's overdosing getting arrested for what we have on them. Is that what you're saying that this law protects like yes, in some absolutely. states protects people about? Okay. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of stigma, right. Um, and you know, just the, the illegality piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the end of the day, there, there is an overdose crisis in the United States, um, in many places. And so these laws are designed to sort of take some of that fear away. And if you are, um, responding to someone who's experiencing an overdose, you don't have to tell 911 when you call that this person is on drugs or that they are overdosing. You can Mm -hmm. just merely describe the the symptoms and what is Mm -hmm. happening to them. For example, this person is not breathing. They're turning blue. I can't hear a heartbeat, whatever it might be. Right. And, you know, if you do have to leave and you have given them naloxone, you can just leave the vials or or the package next to the person. That way when EMS does arrive, they do know, okay, this person has been given Narcan and they can kind of go from there. Right, okay, so like if you have reasons that you don't want to interact with emergency personnel and need to leave the scene, okay. Yeah, and and you have options and that's kind mm -hmm. of the whole thing about harm reduction, right? It's it's a pragmatic approach to drug use and a, a realistic one. And so, you know, that's why there there are no hard and fast rules of do this or don't do this, but, you know, sort of a, a continuum of human behavior and, right. uh, you know, acknowledging the risks at any point of it. I want to come back to that in a little bit because I want to have this whole conversation about what harm reduction, like why the work that y'all do is so... Um, like philosophically important um, to like disaster preparedness and probably life in general. But first I want to, I want to keep talking about some of this stuff. Like with, like you're talking about the, you know, there's an overdose crisis in the United States. I feel like everyone on some level knows that. And one of the things that's so interesting to me, I've been thinking, I was thinking about before we did this episode is that it's like, you know, this is all about like disaster preparedness, right? The whole, whole show. And it, it feels like, a lot of communities, and certainly including uh, drug communities, I don't know the way to phrase that. Like you can say people who use drugs. Okay, but so the, there is a disaster happening right now. Like there is a crisis. Like there's a reason we call it crisis. You know, it's like a really fucking bad thing. And I'm wondering if, um, without necessarily going into it like too great, but I'm curious, like what is happening? Like what is What's happening right now? Why is everyone ODing? Well, you know, there's a lot of different facets to the overdose crisis and a lot of different solutions. Some of them sort of more triage, 
you know, we, we were just talking about naloxone and, and it's a great medication. It saves lives. But ultimately, uh, what we really need is a safe supply of drugs. If mm-hmm. people are aware and knowledgeable of what they're taking, how potent it is, uh, if there are any adulterants in it, you know, that's where we would like to go. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. Drugs are illegal in most drugs are illegal in most places in the United States. Um, and, you know, there there has been pushes for access to safe supply in places like Canada, in, uh, you know, I believe uh, Oregon has has, I think, um, legalized some drugs. Right. You can mm-hmm. put purchase, I think, mushrooms now. Um, don't quote me on that. I'm not actually super familiar with Oregon law. <laughs> Anyone who's listening to this, you can go out and buy mushrooms legally. And if the police stop you, you can say, it's, it's totally okay. Fine. It's not a crime. <laughs> don't do that. Okay. Anyway, yeah. I mean, you know, philosophically, it's not a crime. It's not a crime to do drugs. And, you know, the the idea that some of these drugs are legal and some of them aren't really uh, is, is sort of goes back to like this puritanical history of our country. Mm-hmm. You know, why is alcohol legal when we know that drunk driving rates are through the roof and, you know, it can cause incredible damage to your body over time. Uh, but then, you know, smoking marijuana is is still illegal in a lot of places. Right. Right where I live for sure, especially in the South. So, you know, I, I think that there's, there's that moral component. So we should bring but, back you prohibition. Know, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so I think, you know, as far as having access to drugs that are safe, mm-hmm. drugs that, that you know what you're getting, you know, I, I think that we don't want to short, when I say we, I mean, people who use drugs, I mean, people in the harm reduction community, um, we don't want to shortchange ourselves. I don't want to say, oh, well, the overdose crisis would be so much better if everyone had nar- Narcan. Yes, right. that's true. But that's a temporary fix. Right. It's no, that's such a good point, because I feel like that's like the I know I came out the gate with like that as the first thing that was on my mind. And I and I'm like kind of embarrassed about that because it's such the like it's the band-aid we always keep getting presented. And it's like a real good band-aid. It's more like the tourniquet we keep getting presented. But it does seem like, yeah, what you're talking about, decriminalization, it's almost like when you make things illegal, it doesn't make the problem go away. Yeah, and you know, I, I think about it in terms of um, living under capitalism for so long, our entire mm-hmm. lives, right? And you get to a point where it's hard to think about solutions outside of the current system. Uh, we're so focused on kind of, again, that that triage, right? How do we make things better uh, within this uh, oppressive state that we live in? But really, ultimately, the goal should be moving past that and moving beyond it, right? Yeah, yeah. So to go back with preparedness, I know that you do a little bit of preparedness yourself. Uh, we talked before we started recording about, uh, you know, canned vegetables and things like that. What, how does it impact your preparedness, both that you are a drug user and also that you like care about and take drug users into consideration in, in your preparedness? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is planning, right? Um, I'm going to use the example of, of evacuating. I lived mm-hmm. in the Gulf South for a very long time. 
hurricanes were a yearly occurrence. Uh, and so I had to think about it a lot. Uh, but, you know, just in terms of what your risk is and making a decision based on that. For example, if you are evacuating, do you bring drugs with you uh, and sort of chance getting pulled over? Or do you try and score in a new place? And you have to decide what the bigger risk is for you. For example, mm -hmm. if I'm driving with five of my friends in an unregistered van with ACAB stickers all over it, <laughs> I might not want to be riding dirty. I might not want to have drugs on me. Right. Versus, you know, if I am going somewhere completely unfamiliar to me, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to score when I get there. Um, it might be worth the risk, right? And so thinking of those things in advance is really important. And the longer you wait in an emergency situation, the longer it's going to take you to get out of that cone of impact, right? If you wait to the last minute, there's going to be, you know, traffic on the road. It's it's harder to to get out. It's harder to find a hotel room, for example. Um, so really that thinking of it in advance, um, you know, I think can save you a lot of critical time when you need to act. Yeah. Yeah, I like, I don't envy a lot of my friends who live in the Gulf South are like, what do I need? And I'm like, I don't know, a house in the mountains somewhere. And then I'm like, no, that doesn't, that doesn't help. You know, I can't just tell people that. Um, well, and I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about preparedness. We're talking about disaster prep and, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of places that haven't had to deal with disasters like hurricanes or flooding yeah. or wildfires are seeing more and more of that now. Um, totally. And there's a greater impact on BIPOC queer and trans folk, disabled people, you know, yeah. marginalized groups whose access to resources is already more limited. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think we really need to look towards communities that have been repeatedly harmed, especially by structural and environmental racism. Yeah. I think they're best informed as to how to survive and how to support each other. And I, I don't want to say just in the Gulf South, but I'm mm -hmm. talking about Flint, Michigan. I'm talking about, you know, Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, there's, there's a lot of places where, you know, people are painfully aware that no one is coming to save you. Yeah. It could be weeks or months for FEMA to arrive uh, in many places, local governments, rely on mutual aid networks and charity groups to provide support. And so that kind of vacuum mm -hmm. speaks to the importance of building dual power uh, it, because it, it leaves the field open, I think, for kind of any group that wants to become entrenched or an inevitability to, to sort of step up, right? Whether that's yeah. a homophobic church group, right-wing militias, especially in rural or remote areas, because yeah. people remember who took care of them. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why the Black Panthers were such a threat with free breakfast programs and community care. It's yeah. why Food Not Bombs is illegal in some places. There's just, there's a lot of power in community sufficiency. Yeah. I mean, and so you, you mentioned that there's like lessons that you draw from these specific places, especially BIPOC communities that are under like constant threat. What are some of the lessons that you feel like you draw from that? I mean, besides the one that you just pointed out, maybe that, maybe that's the answer to the question, what you point out that like building mutual aid networks and stuff like that. But 
Yeah, absolutely. Figuring out who is in your support network. Also in a disaster or crisis situation, how will you communicate with that network is really important. Uh, you know, do folks know where you're staying and vice versa? Yeah. Also, you know, we're talking right now in 2022, almost 2023, the COVID pandemic isn't over. So figuring out how you can shelter places safely, uh, you know, do you have masks on hand, uh, that sort of thing. And then going back to prepping for people who use drugs, stocking up on drugs, you know, um, you might be thinking, oh, well, after the fact, I can just X, Y, Z, whatever your, your plan is. But what if your dealer evacuated, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, as far as staying with other people, how do they feel about drug use? Does everyone know where the naloxone is and how to use it? You know, disasters are, are stressful. You right. could be dealing with extreme temperatures, hunkering down with people in their different temperaments. Um, and, you know, for most of us, too, stress impacts drug use. And it's important to keep that in mind if you're, you know, for example, trying to cut back or regulate your use. I think all of these things, you know, are useful for people who use drugs, but but ultimately I think they're all skills or at least, um, you know, aspects of preparing that are beneficial for anyone. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting because it, um, you know, normally we think of like, okay, if you can get more of a medication that you need ahead of time, right, that's great. And, you know, there's this limitation. It's actually a very similar limitation. The, the limitation is legality in this case of like, um, you know, it's, it's sometimes very hard for people who even have a prescription to get more than, you know, a month's worth of supply or whatever at a time of any given prescription. And it's like something that people run up against a lot. And then obviously with, uh, I, I don't know whether way to phrase it as street drugs or not, or like drugs that are not being bought through, um, the pharmaceutical networks or whatever, you know, there's an accessibility that is hit and miss. And then there's also an increased danger of stockpiling because it seems like the the level of risk that you're carrying for, for getting busted changes a lot based on how much of any given drug you have avail on you. Yeah, definitely. And I, I do want to kind of speak to one of the pieces you talked about as far as mm -hmm. having medications, you know, if you're on prescription medications, uh, you know, you can check in with your provider, see if you can get a larger refill than normal, say, you know, instead of 30 days, can you get a 60 day supply, um, especially for people who use drugs, who might be on, um, you know, medication assisted treatment, they might be mm -hmm. taking methadone, uh, naltrexone, and, you know, these are highly effective in terms of either regulating your use or perhaps, you know, not using at all, but they can be difficult to access. And in some places, it's harder to pick up the prescription for Vivitrol or Suboxone uh, mm -hmm. because of stigma, because pharmacists, uh, you know, have this idea of, of drug users or they just might not know the, the regulations and laws in their area. Yeah. And you might not know them either because you're new. So I think that checking in, like I said, with providers ahead of time, if that's possible, um, and, you know, doing what you can in terms of stocking up. But this, that whole plan needs the assistance of people in the medical field. And even they have, you know, that kind of stigma, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. To self-insert this, I, I got refused a COVID shot because I was wearing a harm reduction shirt once. Wait, why? What was the like, excuse that they gave you? 
they, I went in, I was like this dirty punk wearing a, um, a steady collective shirt, which is the harm reduction group in, in Asheville, North Carolina. And I, and it's funny, I, I feel like it's like stolen valor that I wear this shirt um, because people, like when I wore it in Asheville, people were like, I love what you do. And I'm like, thanks. What I do is I designed the logo. And the reason I wear the shirt is because I designed the logo for it, which I'm very proud of. And it's just crossed hypodermic needles. And um, it's a cool logo. Thanks. Thanks. And I, I was in like rural fucking right wing California and I wanted a COVID booster. And so I went into the pharmacy. I, I found out ahead of time that this particular pharmacy did walk-ins. And I walked in and the, the pharmacist at the counter was talking to a doctor who was in line in front of me. And they were both just complaining about drug users. And they were just both sitting there being like, oh, these damn you know, junkies or whatever. I don't remember how they phrased it, but it wasn't polite. And then like the person finally leaves and I walk up and I'm like, y'all take walk-ins. And she's like, no. And I'm like, can I make an appointment? And she's like, not for today. That is wild. I mean, also you have a lot of people in the medical community that don't really believe that COVID is a thing or that vaccines are effective. I mean, you can have an anti-vaxxer pharmacist, which is, Yeah. yeah, I mean- and like, uh, this is such a like, I face stigma once. I, I So it's like, it's it's really easy for me to imagine after that, that like, of course, people face stigma coming in and picking up their fucking medications if they're like the kinds of medications that are, yeah, you know, like methadone and stuff like that. Um, That's fucked up. I don't have a, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about COVID and I think harm reduction is a huge piece of, you know, Mm -hmm. how we can kind of move through the world right now. Uh, People are continuing to die and be disabled by COVID. And, you know, we were talking a little bit before before we started um, about, you know, kind of the beginning of COVID. And I was really optimistic at first, kind of seeing mutual aid networks spring up and more people coming to the realization that the government will kill us for the sake of the economy. Um, But, you know, now I think even in radical spaces, that sort of care and community level protection has given way to the more mainstream sentiment or desire to return to normalcy. And that's just something that isn't possible. And it's not desirable to many, many people for whom normalcy was oppressive and a danger. Yeah. You know, I think that especially as anarchists or folks that consider themselves radical preppers as well. Um, we know that we keep us safe, right? Like yeah. That's kind of the tagline, but that should also apply to immunocompromised people as well. Yeah. Folks. And, you know, now I think it's a really great time to take stock of your existing protocols um, and safety measures and sort of ask if, those things that you're doing or not doing are still in line with what our current risk is. And right now going into winter, you know, nationally over 10% of tests are coming back positive. And we know that we're severely under testing and we know that COVID reinfections wear down your immunity. Yeah. That increases your risk for long COVID uh, or kind of lingering COVID symptoms and you know makes people more susceptible to things like the flu, RSV, or strep A, all three of which we're seeing a surge of in this winter. Yay! Yeah, I, 
I think about it like the fact that I don't know how to put this. Like I wear a mask for the same reason I carry a gun. And it it hell yeah. And not that I want everyone to carry guns. That is a very personal decision based on the legality and the threat models that you're facing. But I carry a gun so that it is harder for someone to murder me and it is harder for someone to murder the people I care about who are near me, right? I wear a mask so that I am less likely to die and other people around me are less likely to die. This seems like such a, like the idea that there's people who are like preppers or prepper adjacent who are anti-mask and then anti-vaccine is just so nonsensical to me. Um, And I mean, I do think that like protocols do like, they do need to shift. We do need to realize as we realize that this is endemic and, you know, we can't like, we probably can't just say no more live music in the course of human history. Right. I would hope not. But it's like, but I, especially like when I walk into the grocery store, there is literally no cost to me to wear a mask. There is just, there's only positive effects of me wearing a mask minus social stigma. I, you know, I think that we need, if we're going to survive care, kindness, and, and a lot of grace, um, which requires us to acknowledge that there's a huge cognitive dissonance people are dealing with right now. There's, we're three years into a global pandemic that's killed six and a half million people around the world. Um, The rise of fascism. I mean, there's a lot and people's responses are going to vary wildly. Kind of the metaphor I like to use is it sort of feels like a house fire. Okay. And we've all just gone through this traumatic experience and we've run out of the house in the middle of the night and everyone is sort of behaving in a a trauma-informed way. Some people are trying to run back into the house. Some people are claiming that there was never a fire. Um, And really, you know, it's it's trying to take care of each other um, and hold ourselves accountable to being, you know, I think responsible for our communities, but while also acknowledging, you know, this is a weird fucking time. Yeah. You know, I, I think, too, this kind of goes back a little bit to our naloxone conversation. Um, you know, when we talk about masks, when we talk about boosters, these are sort of individual um, steps we can take, right? Mm-hmm. But ultimately, that's that's only a piece of it, right? Uh, we mm-hmm. need a societal shift. We need proper air filtration in schools. Yeah. We yeah. need access to rapid testing. We need the working class to have the money and ability to take time off of work when they're sick. Yeah. I mean, all of these things are sort of interconnected to this larger struggle. And one way that capitalism and our sort of overlords um, here in the imperial core uh, are able to, to shift blame is by, you know, kind of making everything this individual choice and individual responsibility when it's not at all. No, that's such a good point. And there's, and it, it shows that there's even like some of those things are small scale community things can be done as well. Like 
it would be a shame for a small scale community to have to suddenly like come up with the resources to provide rapid testing to everyone constantly or whatever. Right. But like, I don't know, like helping your local venues get real good air filtration systems, you know, or like expanding outside infrastructure in climates that allow it. And like, there are these steps that we can take that are sort of medium. They're not. And I think that's actually where anarchists and radicals actually do best is not at the individual level. And frankly, if I, if I'm being honest, not necessarily at the systemic level, but like this sort of in between level, this community based, this community sized level of like, how do we, yeah, I mean, we can't, the punks or the anarchists or the whatevers can't pass pass a mask mandate, but like we can create like cultures where when there's no reason not to, we wear masks and we work on our air filtration. And this is really just me thinking about COVID instead of the whole point of this conversation was drug use stuff. But well, I mean, they're, I think they're interrelated, you know, um, if you are putting on a punk show, uh, is it accessible, right? Does that mean, you know, for folks in wheelchairs, folks with, you know, um, mobility aids, as well as immunocompromised people and ensuring that, you know, this is a place that they have access to, or if it's not saying that. I at least want you to say, hey, this is a dangerous place for you. And yeah. Making it accessible is not our priority or isn't possible in this situation. Therefore, you can make your own decision about whether or not you want to attend. I've been in like, now I can't remember if it was France or Montreal, somewhere where people spoke French. I've been in places where like any anarchist event will put on the flyers the accessibility or lack of accessibility for wheelchair access. Um, and that's such an interesting and good point, right? Because if you have to flag on it, this is not wheelchair accessible. It means you have to think about it when you do it. Right. And like, which isn't to say you shouldn't. I don't know one way or the other about what I'm about to say, which doesn't mean like you can't put on an event if you can't find a accessible space, but you should have to own it and you should have to be working on making a space more accessible. Is that a I'm really talking out my ass here. I, don't, I haven't I haven't been part of these conversations, but. I mean, as someone uh, who is struggling with long COVID still Mm -hmm. a year in, you know, I am also new to the disability conversation. And Mm -hmm. I definitely feel grateful for the folks who have been activists and have been organizing around these issues for, you know, forever, honestly. Um, And it really was shocking to me, even though I'm fairly realistic about how our society treats uh, folks they they deem unworthy or undesirable. Uh, But it was really shocking the level to which you become invisible. And, you know, I think to sort of shoehorn a little segue back to our original conversation, uh, people who use drugs also live in that sort of liminal space, right? There's so much that is invisible about drug use, but also... uh, this kind of caricature of drug users is sort of trotted out anytime people want to talk about society's ills, right? When people yeah. are talking about folks without homes, uh, inevitably drug use comes up as if people aren't sitting in their houses doing drugs. They oh, just yeah. have walls and you can't see them. 
Yeah. Well, and then one of the things that I really appreciate about this conversation with you is that you're talking about the implication or the the inference that I'm picking up on is that basically saying it's okay if people use drugs. That is their choice. It seems to be like like a lot of the conversation that I've feel like I'm exposed to is this like we should have pity for these poor drug users and everyone is trying to stop using drugs. Whereas it seems like you're trying to present an alternate case where people can choose whether or not they want to engage with drugs in different ways. Yeah. I mean, you know, harm reduction is the sort of set of principles or or tenets that allows for autonomy and allows for people to make informed decisions about what they do. Uh, You know, abstinence doesn't necessarily work or isn't feasible for everyone. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, giving people the the space and acknowledging that there's always going to be some risk in the things that we do, you know, helps us kind of approach it with clear eyes. But the I think the moral question around using drugs really does us a disservice. Doing drugs is fun and cool. And (laughs) that is, I think, an important message to have out there because, you know, so often we're just inundated with all of the terrible things that can happen to you. Uh, And and again, this is normal human behavior. This is normal behavior in other other species. You've got monkeys eating, you know, fruit that's gone gone bad and getting drunk. You've got bears eating psychedelic honey. Um, yeah. We do this because it's enjoyable. And right. to deny that, I think, sort of leaves us on our back foot in terms of, okay, well, how do we do this safely? Uh, how do we do yeah, this? Yeah, within? yeah. Yeah, present, presenting it as this is a bad thing that someone shouldn't have done and now we have to deal with the bad parts as compared to being like every animal on the planet wants to do this. We should figure out ways that people can have freedom to do it as safely as they want or to not do it if they don't want. Uh, Right. And, you know, both are fine. It's also cool to not do drugs. I do want to put that out there, but as a drug user, uh, you know, this touches on our conversation about safe supply Right. Right. When you're buying uh, and you don't know the quality or if there's cross contamination, um, obviously, a lot of folks are very concerned about things like fentanyl right now. Um, There's also, you know, other sort of fillers or or things people can use. Xylazine is something that is uh, sort of making the rounds right now that can have potential like negative health impacts. So, yeah, I, I think this this goes back to sort of those bigger picture um, solutions as opposed to the band-aids. Okay. And then how useful is it, you know, like, as, as you pointed out earlier, right, um, again, before we had a, a long pre-conversation, uh, we, we knew each other back in the day for now people can know that about us, I guess. Um, you know, pointing out, because like, I mostly don't do drugs, but I do drink sometimes, right? And that is a drug. And alcohol is absolutely a drug. It's a very dangerous drug. And it's one that I engage with very rarely, but I do engage with. And it does seem like a fairly useful comparison for talking about, 
other drugs. Like is there's this drug that is socially acceptable while also being massively destructive, right? And it seems like that actually maps fairly well to most of the other drugs that are like problems for people. I don't know. Is that too simplistic? No, I don't think so. You know, and that's also not to say that people don't struggle with their drug use, that people, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, might be really unhappy with their relationship to drugs. Uh, And, you know, the more openly we can talk about it and the more access to different options people have, that sort of allows them to, you know, find the most comfortable place for them. Right. There is this, you know, kind of individual piece to it, even though we're talking a lot about sort of community care. Right. No, that's what I mean. And that in some ways is part of why alcohol feels like such a good comparison. It's not even a comparison. It's literally a drug. It's a a drug that is somehow held into a different class than the others is that I think we all know people who for whom alcohol is a problem. And we all know people for whom alcohol is not a problem. And then we all know people who completely abstain from alcohol who are in one of those two camps if they weren't abstaining, you know? Huh. I don't know. I'm having this like epiphany that should have been obvious a long time ago, I think, about this. Well, um, and, you know, thinking in terms of alcohol and and using that as an example of how constrained we are in terms of our choices, uh, you know, if if you are someone that struggles with drinking, um, really the, the options that are given to you are abstinence, right? Mm -hmm. 12 steps, um, complete sobriety and the message that that is the only way that you will be able to, you know, become a functioning member of society. And the fact is that that's simply not true. Right. You know, abstinence really doesn't work for many, many people. You know, I, I think, most of us can remember the just say no campaigns of the 90s or maybe even the 80s, uh, depending on how old you are. And we know those didn't work. <laughs> um, <laughs> they don't work for children. It doesn't work for adults. Um, and, you know, I, I think I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole, but I think it would be important for folks to sort of think about well, why is alcohol legal and all of these other drugs aren't? Right. And I think it all goes back to capitalism. It goes back to money. It goes back to social control. Yeah. Well, ironically, one of the reasons that alcohol is legal is that a bunch of people fought the KKK to the death to make alcohol legal. Um, I only learned this kind of more recently when I, I did a bunch of one of my other podcasts is a history podcast. And I didn't realize that the second incarnation of the KKK was like one of their main things is that they were the foot soldiers of prohibition. They were like the proud boys of the prohibition era. Teetotalers. Yeah, for Christ. Yeah. And it was this whole thing where it was like Protestants versus everyone else, including reasonable Protestants. Um, It was white Protestants against Irish Catholics, Italians, uh, all of the people who were, you know, bootlegging and all of that other stuff and there were these like massive violent street fights um and i mean mostly it was massive violent street fights about fuck you you're the kkk we want to you can't run our town but what they wanted to do was run the town on a prohibition model and there's this like really interesting tie between white supremacy 
and uh, prohibition. And it, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I know I, I know how to immediately draw the same thing between uh, the outline of weed and anti-blackness. And I'm suspecting that if I dug very hard, I would find similar things with like drugs, period. I don't know. I just get really excited about people beating up the KKK and that's why we're allowed to drink. Yeah, that's always a win, both of those things. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but, oh, what? anyway, sorry, I got lost in rabbit hole thinking about that. Okay, so you brought up this topic a couple times, harm reduction. And I suspect most people have at least an idea of what harm reduction is, but I'm wondering if you could kind of introduce it because one, it feels very relevant to this specific conversation, but it also feels very relevant to conversations around disaster preparedness in general, because it seems to be implying that there is no perfect and that in some ways perfect is the enemy of good and that we should just like figure out what can go wrong and do the best we can rather than expect to succeed at everything. Maybe that's a misunderstanding. That's, that is, I think, um, a really core piece of it, you know, and I, I don't want to belie the, the history behind harm reduction too. Mm -hmm. You know, this was a movement that was created and platformed by people who use drugs, by Mm -hmm. sex workers, um, especially during the HIV AIDS crisis. Um, and again, you know, from groups of marginalized people that realize that they are the only ones looking out for each other. Um, and you know, that, many behaviors carry some form of risk. And so talking about that honestly and figuring out how to mitigate that risk is far more helpful than shaming people. Uh, and, and that is connected, you know, directly to the criminalization of HIV and AIDS too. Mm-hmm. You know, there's uh, the sort of moralizing, right? When folks become sick, there's this idea, I think, that is rooted in, in very like old school brimstone Christianity that, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's some form of punishment. Um, and I think yeah. that the way our society looks at people who use drugs uh, and the potential risks are viewed as appropriate punishment for the behavior, which is wrong and fucked up. Yeah. Okay. So, so what is harm reduction? So, you know, I think that if we're specifically talking about drug use, uh, that can be, you know, practical tips, anything from um, making sure that you're using uh, sterile supplies, making sure that you have uh, syringes and you don't have to share them um, to prevent the transmission of, uh, of diseases, you know, that mm-hmm. can be, uh, you know, figuring out different routes of administration So, for example, if you're someone that likes to snort a lot of drugs, maybe you want to give your nostrils a break and, you know, smoke or boof. Um, There are a lot of things that you can kind of adjust, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You don't even have to necessarily be adhering to to this strict uh, set of rules as far as your drug use, but really being sort of flexible based on your own needs. Okay. And then... What are some of the ways that harm reduction either applies to other things besides drug use or like has been successfully applied or like some of the ways that like harm reduction as jargon has been like kind of co-opted by other things? 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like, especially after 2016, the the idea that voting is harm reduction really picked up speed. Mm-hmm. And I personally disagree. Okay. For the most part, because harm reduction is something that, you know, you you can use for yourself, for, for your drug use. And so when we say voting is harm reduction, my question is, whose harm is being lessened? You know, we currently have a Democratic president and there's mm-hmm. still concentration camps on our southern border. You still have Democratic mayors and city councils introducing regressive anti-homelessness laws, throwing more money at more cops. And so I just think the notion that we can affect the kind of change necessary to liberate us by voting is... Um, it's short-sighted and I think it can be an excuse for people to not have to invest so much in their allyship. Um, okay. Yeah. I think at, at its very base, most like literal definition, voting potentially reduces harm, but most right. of that is going to be in the immediate or short term. Well, so, so that's really interesting to me, right? Because I think that I had a kind of misunderstanding of harm reduction in some ways, because from my point of view, I mean, voting as harm reduction just seemed to be the rephrasing of vote for the lesser evil, because in my mind, voting for the lesser evil is acknowledging an evil, right? It is acknowledging like 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 Biden is an evil. Uh, The Democratic Party is an evil that does evil things in the world. And so for me, there's a there's a sensibility to the argument of thinking that voting is how we make systemic change is terrible. And I, I actually thought that the kind of concept of, but they, they always lose their meaning, right? In the 80s and 90s, it was vote for the lesser evil. And people would be like, yeah, that's how we make things better. It's like, no, it's clearly not how you make things better. It's how you make things evil. You're just controlling the amount of evil. And then with the harm reduction argument, the reason I, I bought it at first was because it was like, oh, yes, because it's, it's saying there is going to be harm, but we want to do less of it. But with what you're talking about, about how, Drug use or sex as two of the spaces that we talk about harm reduction a lot, right? Like those things can rule, right? Like sex and drugs, there's a reason that people talk about them positively. They're very dangerous activities sometimes, right? And and people should go into them as clear-headed as – well, (laughs) maybe not clear-headed depending on their preferences. But people should – be aware of the risks, but then go and have all the sex and drugs and, and rock and roll or whatever that they want as compared to. And so this is where the metaphor to the political system seems to fall apart to me is because like, well, the the existing political system that we have is just doing bad. And it's really about what tiny little bits of mitigation or picking something's going to kill. It's the trolley problem, right? You're still killing people. And that's not fun and cool. That's not sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I don't know. It's that's not. what I got. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I think that you really laid it out very well there. You know, yes, I can reduce the harm to myself if I am using drugs or having sex. Mm. But I can't get these politicians that I voted in to reduce the harm that they are causing. Because, you know, if you're voting for one of the two dominant political parties in the United States, 
I think you're just asking yourself if you want to get to fascism the short way or the long way. Because I think, you know, voting in Democrats does make a material difference when it comes to some social services and some environmental protections. But ultimately, both of these parties work at the behest of the ruling class and capitalism requires ceaseless consumption and growth. And neither of those are sustainable and they require the subjugation of working class people. So I think, you know, if... You know, it's a it's a question of capacity. If you and the people in your community that you organize with have the time and resources to engage in electoral politics while simultaneously building dual power and fighting encroaching fascism, like go with God. Um, but I think <laughs> as it stands, there's there's space for a lot of tactics, and you you got to yeah. find where your skill set is and and where your yeah. comfort lies. And I do just want to say this one last piece too. When we talk about voting as harm reduction in the United States, that often, I think, tends to overlook the international implications of maintaining the current political system here. Right. Which is, that's where it becomes even more of the same is like, yeah, it's it's never, the solutions don't lie in the ballot box and like, whatever, I'm just like speaking cliches or whatever, but it's like, even if we can make things like slightly better uh, like, because like literally if someone was like, well, do you want fascism tomorrow? Do you want fascism in five years? I'd be like five years, please. That gives me a little bit more time to try to fight it. But of course, the problem, obviously, we're <laughs> way off topic here. But the problem is, of course, then people think that like, oh, that's the solution. The solution is engaging with this political system that has no fucking reason for existing besides driving us closer to ecocide and fascism. Um, right. That's that's the Band-Aid. That's the triage, you know, and yeah. there are so many different things that I think harm reduction principles can be applied to, uh, whether that's sex work, um, you know, mental health issues, eating disorders, tobacco use. I think there's a really natural evolution of the harm reduction philosophy to extend it to other health risk behaviors and, and to a broader audience in that way. Uh, I just I, I think that Again, using harm reduction to sort of Pontius Pilate, wash your hands of a lot of things and just say, yeah. I voted and that's enough is it's not going to work. It's not yeah. working. Okay. No, I, I, and now I'm thinking, I'm like, oh shit, is my like, I just carry around naloxone. Is that my like, <laughs> wash my hands of addressing the larger systemic things? I'm like, well, it doesn't affect me. It clearly affects me because it affects people I care about. And it like, I don't know. Is the takeaways... Okay. Wait, I'm going to try and sum up the takeaways I've gotten from you. Is that carrying naloxone, but it's a Band-Aid, and it is a useful one, but the larger systemic problems have to do with criminalization, and they have to do with access to safe supply. And so working on the kind of pressure involved to fight for that is good. Having mutual aid networks... um, Oh, okay. One of the questions I kind of had actually is, in your experience, existing mutual aid networks, how well do they get along with existing harm reduction networks? Does it tend to be the same players and everyone's excited? Or do you run across in mutual aid networks, do they kind of like got to step up their game about actually care about, you know, drug users or like, how does that look right now? 
in my personal experience, and I, I can't really speak to, you know, places I haven't lived or, you mm-hmm. know, uh, different communities that I'm not a part of, but there is a great deal of overlap. You know, cool. um, a lot of folks that are working in harm reduction, people who use drugs and sex workers uh, are sort of used to, you know, fending for ourselves. Uh, yeah. We're used to uh, creating these these networks of care that exist outside of the current system. And, you know, th- that's not to say that when disaster strikes, it it can sort of hit some folks harder than others. If the needle exchange in your town closes down because there was a disaster, um, mm-hmm. you know, there, there mm-hmm. might be some time before they open back up. And that's not going to stop people from using drugs. Uh, it will just create a situation where people have to use drugs more dangerously. Uh, and so, you know, yes, I think that there's a lot of overlap but also uh, it shouldn't be this sort of jerry-rigged, um, you know, last line of defense. The folks that have just experienced a disaster now having to turn around and all care for each other because, again, no one is coming to save you. Yeah. Yay. That's the That's, <laughs> that's the, the real lesson. point of it, yes. But, I mean, you in- it's really liberating. I think that, like, I'm not super into political nihilism personally. A lot of my friends are, and I don't mean to slight it. But the thing that reminds me of what, like, my, like, nihilist friends get out of, like, hopelessness, not hopeless, whatever, out of nihilism, is comparable to the, like, I find something joyous and liberating about the realization that no one's coming to save us. Um, because it's this, like, concept, one of my favorite cliches from, like, the when I was a baby anarchist was just, like, we are the ones we've been waiting for because it's less about no one is coming to save us. We're doomed. And it's more about like, it is up to us to build the power and capacity necessary to bring about the changes that we need to see in this world. And there's a lot of us and there's a lot more of us all the time. And the problems we're facing seem to be getting bigger and bigger depending on the position you're coming from, right? The problems facing me have gotten bigger and bigger as all the anti-trans stuff comes through or whatever, you know? But but there's also more of us. Even just continues the trans thing as a metaphor. It's like the reason there's all this anti-trans shit is that we all came out of the fucking closet. <laughs> like there's a ton of us and like there always were a ton of us, but we were all fucking scared. And like, and what they want to do is make us afraid and get back in the closet. And so I get a lot out of no one is coming to save us because of the flip side being we're going to save us. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's really liberatory. That's something that I love about anarchism, too. You know, yeah. yes, that means that, you know, the, the system isn't here for us because it's never been here for us. But ultimately, we have to take responsibility for our own lives, for our communities, and for the future that we want, as opposed to sort of being handed uh, these these goals and expect- expectations, the roles that we're supposed to have, the lives we're supposed to lead. And, yeah. you know, it can be scary to not have that uh, safety net. But I think through, uh, you know, both political discourse, but also <laughs> just, uh, you know, having lived a life, uh, you quickly become aware that that safety net never actually existed in the first place. Yeah. Well, 
Are there any uh, last words on um, preparedness that you want to you want to shout out? Everyone should fill their basement with needles. <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, I mean, don't do that. Or oh. if you do that, make sure that they are, uh, you know, safely uh, kept somewhere <laughs> yeah, uh, that only you have access to or, or the folks that need them. Um, you know, I, I, I know I've, I've kind of hammered this home a lot, but it really, when I say it, harm reduction mm-hmm. and I think what we are trying to do for ourselves really comes down to community and it comes down to having these bigger goals and not taking no for an answer or taking, you know, half measures for an answer. Uh, the overdose crisis is very real. Uh, and there are pharmaceutical companies and families that have directly caused a lot of pain and death, and they should be held accountable. And that is slowly happening over time. But I just want to keep clear, you know, who are the folks in our community who are doing the work and uh, who are maybe the people that are sort of preventing us from living our best lives. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, is there anything you want to shout out here at the end of like um, what people, I don't know, is there anything you want to draw attention to? Any projects? Any of your work? Uh, you know, support your local needle exchange, support your local sex workers. You know, if there is a call to fight back against fascists or show up at your local library because people are doing some fuck shit against trans people, you should be there. That's my shout out. Yeah, that's a good shout out. Well, thanks for being on. It's funny as like every now and then I do these episodes where I'm like, it like challenges my own like weird I don't want to say puritanical upbringing. I didn't have a puritanical upbringing. I was around a lot of people, you know, all my friends did a lot of drugs when I was in whatever. And it's just like interesting to every now and then I have these episodes. Like it's like the first couple of times I did firearms episodes. I was like, it's not that I was like, oh, I'm being so edgy. It was just being like, oh, right. Information is dangerous because I, and then I'm like, that's true about everything. I don't know where I'm going with this. Basically, thanks for uh, coming on to talk about something that I feel like doesn't, get talked about because people are afraid to acknowledge it because we all walk around with this like drugs are bad and then we just secretly all do drugs and so it's just better to just actually be like drugs are complicated yeah and people are complicated what not me (laughs) i'm a paladin i adhere to my moral that doesn't sound great okay yep all right well thank you for coming on this episode Thanks for having me. All right. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell people about it by whatever means um, that you prefer to tell people about things like skywriting. Please skywrite, live like the world is dying above a beach. Ooh, get one of those banners that goes behind the like little plane that flies by the beach and usually advertises auto insurance. And instead it should just say, live like the world is dying. Um, don't tell people it's a podcast. Just tell people to live like the world is dying and become a cool, no future punk or a 
only a future if we imagine it. Okay, I'm off track. So uh, yeah, you can tell people about it. You can also support us. This podcast is published by, pa- not by Patreon, supported by Patreon. It's published by Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness, which is a publishing collective that I'm part of, along with a bunch of other people. We put out books. We recently put out uh, Cindy Baroque Milstein's Try Anarchism for Life. And soon, possibly actually, I don't know when this episode is going to be released, February 1st, 2023, we are releasing my book, Escape from Incel Island. If you're listening to this before February 1st, 2023, you can pre-order it at tangledwilderness.org. If you're listening to it after February 1st, 2023, you can buy it wherever books are sold or go to the library or steal a copy from Barnes and Noble. I don't care. Uh, and But don't steal it from an info shop. That's just That's just mean. Why would you do that? get a library to carry it and then get it or steal it from a big corporate place, whatever you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. And your donations go to pay the transcriptionist and pay the audio editor to keep all of this stuff happening. And in particular, I want to thank Allie and Paparuna and Milica, Boise Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, Sean, SJ, Paige, Mickey, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Kat, Jay, Starro, Jennifer, Eleanor, Kirk, Sam, Micaiah, Chris, and Haas the Dog. I really appreciate all of you, and I really appreciate that there's enough of you that I read your names fast, and maybe that's like really rude, but I just like, I don't know, I'm kind of like humbled by the support that Strangers gets, and I hope that you who are listening well, I only hope you support us if you can afford it. If you can't afford it, just continue to get our shit for free. That's the whole point of supporting it is it helps other people get our shit for free. Anyway, I'll talk to you all soon. Be as well as you can. <laughs>